I'm sorry about the latest start. Uh, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we will, we will get underway. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I know that the folks who are gathered here tonight, we've come because we want to, we really want to understand your word. And the reason we want to understand your word is because we want to know you. And that's how we know you. And we know ultimately we know you through the word, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for him. Lord, I pray that in our time tonight that you would bring clarity. We're talking about a lot of things which are intermediate. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, uh, that you would help us sort through the details and keep the big picture, that you would help us to think critically and evaluate ideas as we're hearing them, that you would help us see these things in the scriptures so that no one would think that this comes from me, because that's not helpful for us, Lord. Help me to be a good communicator. Um, Lord, I pray that our technology would not be a distraction, but that it would be helpful, and that, Father, you would be pleased by our time together. And I ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so we are in week three, and just to review the goal, we won't do as much review, but our goal is we are working towards a unified framework of the Bible, which is not an easy thing to do considering the scope and the diversity and the unique quality of the Bible. Of course, if you've read it before, I mean, I would encourage you, I was talking with somebody about this this week, when you're reading the Bible and you don't understand something, one of the best ways to learn is to begin by admitting, I don't think I know what that means. It is amazing how many people uh, never get there. So I, I, we say this all the time in our house, I don't know what that means. I thought I knew what that meant, I don't know what that means. So just, just start there. But we want to know what the Bible means. And so we're working towards a unified framework of the Bible. And one of the things that I'm really trying to, to emphasize, especially in this course, is to recognize that the Bible is progressive revelation. Right? That's, a, that's a $5 word, but it's pretty straightforward, which simply means that the Bible unfolds. God is unfolding. He's revealing himself through the scriptures progressively. Progressively in history right? The flood comes after creation, and then Babel comes after the flood, which comes after creation, right? He's revealing himself through history progressively, which means that it is, it is unfolding. Now, that's really important for us because as we read the Bible, we want to be sure not to flatten it. We want to be sure that we recognize that there's some unfolding, there's an unfolding that takes place. Now, I realize this can sound sort of abstract, so I tried to pick an example of how this would work, all right? So you don't have to look up these texts. I would encourage you, don't write these down for you avid note takers. I know that some of you are out here. Don't write these down, and if you want, you can get them from me. All right, let's look at a, a familiar passage. Okay, in Leviticus, okay, so we're going to talk about the unfolding of the concept of sacrifice, Okay, so uh, we understand that the sacrifices were established by God in Israel to deal with sin. Leviticus 4.25 Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with its finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. And, and all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Okay, so what we're seeing here is a, this is probably what we think of when we think of sacrifice 
first, right? The sacrificing of animals. But in the Bible, it doesn't just stay there. The Bible unfolds to show us a greater understanding, right? So we would all quickly say, hey, we understand this concept. Hebrews chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single what? Tell me. Sacrifice. Do you see what just happened? Christ is not an animal, but it is showing that Christ is falling into this pattern of sacrifice to atone on all these, all these different things, right? Now, I would guess that almost every single one of you in here, I would put money on it, but don't tell my church. They would probably be upset to know I bet, right? I would put money on it that every one of you understood this progression, right? That Christ was a sacrifice. But do you get the next step? Look at this, 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about the church. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer what? Spiritual sacrifices. Okay, we're not talking about animals and we're not talking about Jesus. It's, it's unfolding. It's getting, it's getting bigger. Now, ultimately, that is filled in Christ, right? Acceptable to God through Christ. But I'm trying to show you that it, that it unfolds. And if we take one of these themes... And if we just plop somewhere and we flatten it as if it only means one thing everywhere, then we're going to miss so much of the Bible. Do you understand? Y'all with me? Everybody with me? Okay. This, I think this is helpful. I, I hope that, that, I hope that, is, that is helpful for you. All right? Now, let's do a little bit of review. The first week, we, so remember, we are working on creating a framework for the whole Bible, and we're using uh, a three-fold kind of pattern. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's the definition, a simple definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Now, the reason this can be really helpful is because this progresses over time. Okay? It changes over time. And if you can identify where we are in the story and identify who God's people are at this point, where God's place is at this point, and what God's blessing or what God's rule looks like, then you will be, uh, you, you'll be able to orient yourself. So the first week we saw the pattern of the kingdom, which is in Eden. In Eden, we see the world as God designed for it to be. Right? God's people are Adam and Eve, and they live in God's place, which is the garden, the Garden of Eden. And they live under his rule as they submit to his word. And as we've seen, to be under God's blessing and to be under God's rule is to enjoy his blessing and his provision. It is the best way to live. God's original creation is a model of his kingdom, how the kingdom is meant to be. Okay, all its review. So let's go to the second week. We looked uh, next at the perished kingdom. This is the fall, mostly Genesis chapter 3, but we trace it a little bit further. God's people, Adam and Eve, think that life would be better if they could live independently from God. And so the results are completely disastrous. And so what happens is we see Adam and Eve no longer as God's people, right? He breaks off relations with them in a way. They turn away from him, they leave him, and God in turn turns away from them. And so they're banished outside of the garden. So God's people are no longer his people and they're no longer in God's place because they did not follow God's rule. And if they don't follow God's rule, they don't get God's blessing, 
which is where all the curses come from. When we do not submit to God's rule, we do not enjoy God's blessings, and we will experience God not through blessing, but through judgment. It's rule of thumb. All right? All these are paradigms that go all through the Bible. And then what we did is we traced the effects of the curse, specifically how sin and death spread. If we had, if we had two theme words for last week, it would have been sin and judgment, right? We saw that this is so bad, that, that sin gets so bad in the world that God actually grieves making the world. He regrets it. And so we saw the flood. Remember what the flood is? It's the uncreation, it's the uncreation of the world. At the creation, God separated the waters and the land. At the flood, he uncreates it. He unseparates it. Do you see? And so we see that God destroys all of humanity, except Noah, and we'll talk about him in a moment. But then right after the flood, the Tower of, the Bab- the Tower of Babel shows us that even though God wiped out all of humanity, almost, he did not wipe out all of sin. Sin was preserved on the ark, right? It was preserved on the ark. And so the, the Tower of Babel shows us that sin survived the flood. God's people, or humanity rather, continue to reject God's rule. And so what happens at the Tower of Babel? They're kicked out, in a sense. They are scattered. Man is scattered and divided by languages, And we see that that continues the pattern. Just like Cain was sent out, and just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, sin has an alienating effect, not only from God and man, but from man and man. So we no longer uh, get to enjoy God's place. We see, just like Adam and Eve did, they're no longer in God's place. They've rejected God's rule, and they're now under God's judgment. But we begin to see a glimmer of grace, especially in the flood. The key thing about the flood is that God was willing to save somebody. That God was willing to preserve somebody. And that brings us now to our, uh, what do we call it tonight? The promised kingdom tonight. Okay, and I'm not going to give you this yet. I'm going to give it to you at the end. So just relax, put your chart down. I remember teachers used to tell me that. And I'm like, don't tell me that. I'll write if I want to. But, and here I am. Um, okay, but before we go any further, let's, I want to think a little bit about how we understand that God has a plan. That God has a plan. All of you are dealing with different circumstances in your life. Some of you, your health has declined. Or your financial situation has changed. There's been things that change, good or bad. And it's helpful for us to remember, we think about God's plan. We talk about that all the time. But I want you to look over at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at some very familiar texts here. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm just going to go through, I'm going to start marking everything that signifies a plan. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation, okay, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then if you jump ahead to verse 10, we see it real explicit. And this is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. 
So it's clear that God has a plan. But why do we so often think of God's plan only as being Jesus, period, right? We skip the unfolding of that plan. And the more that you spend time studying and learning and taking account for the plan, what happens is you begin to find, you begin to find comfort. You recognize that you have a place in this plan and that God is continuing to unfold it. There are, my chart has, what, eight columns? There should be more columns, but we don't know what they're going to be like. That'll be at the end of the age. We'll have more detail. Okay? So notice that God has an eternal plan for the redemption of his people, and it demonstrates that he will not be defeated by the fall. He will not be defeated by the fall. This has been his plan all along. Okay? Now, let's turn and let's start thinking about what I'm going to call threads of grace. Where last week we looked at sin and death, this week we're looking more at threads of grace. And I got a little bit ahead of myself last week. I tried not to, but I couldn't control myself. So you'll hear a little bit of this again. Um, But we are looking now at threads of grace. In the parish kingdom, we saw themes of sin and judgment, but we can now come to a third theme, and that is grace. And we need to view this with fresh eyes. If you are a church person, if you grew up in church, you've heard grace, grace, grace all the time. We sing about it even in our patriotic songs, right? God shed his grace. We get used to it and we get numb to it. And this is one of the advantages, I think, of understanding that Revelation is a story, that it's progressive. Because when you slow down and linger in the story, you can develop an appreciation that grace even exists. And that's what happens here if you've been with us for these first few weeks. So we can begin tracing themes of grace that actually give us hope at this point in the Bible's story. Now what's so beautiful about this for us is that after the fall, and after Cain, and after the flood, and after Babel, we see there is another way besides judgment. There's another way besides judgment. There's another way that sinful man can relate to God. If you sin, you relate to God through judgment. That's what we've seen. But now we're seeing threads of grace Human sin will always be met by God's judgment. But now we're starting to see a new thread, another thread. It's not a new thread, but another thread, and that is the thread of grace and mercy. So let's trace some of these themes together. We'll do a couple of these a little bit more quickly because I got ahead of myself last week. The first one is that of the serpent crusher, right? The Bible, even at the beginning, even right when everything goes haywire in chapter 3, we saw that immediately God gives us a deposit of hope. It's not all doom and gloom. Despite man's sin, despite Adam and Eve's sin, God still loves them. Well, I'll go through this quickly because we did this last week. But he, he comes looking for them, remember? God chased them. He provided for them. He gave them clothes. He made a promise to them, most notably in Genesis chapter 3.15, that he is going to... Let's read it together. I don't think I have this one on the... He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head... And you shall bruise his heel. Now that seems like a strange, clunky, covered up kind of 
promise that doesn't seem that interesting until we recognize that God is pointing to a time in the future that the son of Eve, a human, will destroy the evil one, right? So when I think of the Bible, when I think about the tracing the themes all the way to the gospel, this is the first text I think of, Genesis 3.15, followed by Genesis 12, which we'll get to tonight. All right. So do you see it? That he's going to defeat death on a cross and then he will one day return to finish the job. Now what, here's where this can be so exciting for us. Look at this text in Romans chapter 16. See, Paul understood the unfolding. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Do you see? This is after the crucifixion. So he sees it's fulfilled and then it's going to be further fulfilled. Right? We've got to understand some timeline here. All right? So that's the first thread of grace. The next one is the mark of Cain. And we see this in Genesis chapter 14. Cain, or chapter, chapter 4, sorry, that should be chapter 4, I think, verse 15. Um, we see that Cain sins, he murders his brother, and as a result, he's driven into exile. We saw that last week. Okay, it looks really bad for Cain. But what happens? God gives grace. He is not totally abandoned. God places a protective mark on him and then promises that anyone who kills him will be judged. So even though it's a small glimmer, we see another glimmer of grace. But here's another one. This is one of my favorites. We get up to chapter 5 and we read in this genealogy, such and such died, such and such died, such and such died, such and such died. I mean, it's looking bleak. Enoch walked with God and was taken away. There's another way for life to end other than death. Do you see, do you see how that works? I've got, um, after the depressing refrain of the genealogy, then we read verse 24. That Enoch, that Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. There is another way to live. There's a different ending for life. We're given the hope that even for sinners, it's possible to know God and escape death. We can cross references. If you think back to the garden, do you remember how God uh, said to fellowship with Adam and Eve? That he, he would walk through the garden. Right? This is why we get these pictures of walking later on in the New Testament. But God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we see Enoch walked with God. It's, it's a description of fellowship. Just like Adam and Eve did before sin. But these are just, te- I mean, these are just little foretastes of grace. They are, they are grace in miniature. They are not even, they're not there, we're not there yet. This is just the first page of the map because now we're moving to some of the big ones and that is God's covenant with Noah this is a big 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 one all right let's read this text together so the Lord said I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens for I'm sorry that I have made them but Noah found Favor. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, this word favor, we could also we could also translate that grace. So you could say, but Noah found 
grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I'm going to make an argument that, that we need to view Noah from a certain perspective. Let's put it like this. In verse 5, we were just told how sinful everybody is. I mean, some of the strongest statements uh, about mankind's brokenness are in this chapter, about how the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great and that, the, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. That is a very damning statement. And surely that included Noah. But something has just pushed God over the edge. Now he's going to destroy the world. So what is so special about Noah? What's so special about Noah? Now, I know that verse 9 comes next. The verse, verse 9 says that Noah was righteous and blameless. But that does not mean that he was absolutely righteous, right? We all know it happened after the flood. Had a, little, had a, bad, had a rough night, right? Noah was not absolutely righteous, And I would also like to point out that the text does not say that Noah found favor because he was righteous. It doesn't say that. It just says Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to say that Noah was a righteous man. That that evaluation could have been years after he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. My point is this. Noah did not find grace because he was righteous. That would not even make sense. I would also argue that the fact that these are separated by a whole different textual division is another reason. But let's just say it like this. If you say that God chose Noah because he was righteous, then there's no need for grace. You just completely undermine grace, toss it out, right? There's no, there's no need there. Grace is the attitude that God has for the good of those who do not deserve it. Would we not agree? Noah may have been comparatively righteous... But he was not absolutely righteous. So what was so special about Noah? God chose him. God elected him. Right? God chose Noah and his family to be recipients of grace. But more than that, we read that this is radical. God chose to make a covenant with Noah. All right? Now, this word covenant is very, very important. If you're going to study the scriptures, let me encourage you, start paying attention to covenant language, and it's all over the place. All right? Now, um, I've got a definition that I like to use. Uh, that's, and the definition that I want to give is, hang on, let's see if I can get here. That a covenant is a promise that formally defines a relationship. Okay? A covenant is a promise in the context of a relationship. Let's, let's, just, let's just start there. It is, it is relational. It's between people, right? Between, uh, between God and man or between man and man, right? I'm in a marriage covenant with my wife that defines what our relationship is like. I'm not in that type of relationship with anyone else. Okay? But you can have, the Bible is full of different covenants. And and a covenant will define, it gives boundaries. It gives terms to a relationship. Now, you'll notice this next point is that some of God's covenants in the Bible are conditional. And some are unconditional. Some are unilateral, which means that God will act no matter what happens. God says, I will do this no matter what. 
period. We must not misunderstand that that is not the same thing as some of the other covenants. Sometimes God says, I will do this if you do this. If you don't do this, I'm not doing it. God does both. We have both of these types of covenants in the scripture and we need to pay attention. So for example, uh, a conditional covenant is if you eat your broccoli, I will take you to get ice cream. All right? An unconditional covenant is eat your broccoli, but even if you don't, I will take you to get ice cream. All right? Do you see, you see the difference? The concept of covenant is a major unifying theme in the Bible. I believe that God's kingdom comes through covenants. And we're talking about kingdom, but um, so, so the concept of covenant is central to the Bible. All right? God's covenant with Noah was an unconditional covenant. It was an unconditional covenant. What was it, what was it for? Think. It was to preserve the world in spite of sin. Okay, we often think of, I will never destroy the world again with a flood, right? That's what the covenant says. Let's look at Genesis chapter 8. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again, and he puts covenant language on this in other places, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. Okay? And we said this last week. The important thing to note here is not simply that God will not destroy the world with a flood. It's not the mode of destruction that's emphasized. So often I think that's what we emphasize when we see rainbows. Right? That, that is not the point. God could destroy the world with marshmallows and still keep this covenant if that was the point. Right? God could destroy the world with anything. So, so what he's saying is, he's willing to tolerate human sinfulness. That's what this covenant is. He's, that, that's why I read verse, verse 21, right? Because he's putting it in the context of, even though man is sinful, I'm not going to destroy the world like I did, right? Now, there is a covenant sign. This is our sign first, by the way. So... My daughter has a rainbow shirt, and I'm happy that she wears it because that was our sign first, right? God put a sign with this covenant. Most of the covenants have signs, and the sign for the Noahic covenant is the bow. The bow. Don't just think rainbow. Think bow, right? It's a sign that God is putting his weapons down. He's hanging up his bow, even though sin would continue, God was not finished with the world. He would never, he would not again uncreate it with a flood. This is an unconditional, unconditional covenant. This is a no matter what. You see? And I would encourage you to note that God made the first move, didn't he? God initiated this and it depends entirely upon him. What we'll see in the Bible is that God makes lots of covenants with man and man can never keep them. So God's got to do something different. And that's what he does in the new covenant. The text says that Noah believed God. He obeyed the commands in chapter 6 to build the ark and to gather animals and his family just like God said. And since he obeyed and since he had faith, the text says since he believed, he was saved. We could look at this at Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. Connecting, it was, it was Noah's faith that saved him. Just like Abraham. Right? He was saved on the ark 
but it was because of his faith. Just as flood undoes the creation, it was followed by a fresh start. I hinted at this last week, but I really want you to see uh, the details here. I'm convinced that God made a covenant with, uh, in, in creation with Adam and Eve, which they failed. And so God continued it. He reestablished it with Noah. This is one of the main reasons I believe that. Look at these similarities. In Genesis 1, God is giving a mandate to his people, Adam and Eve, right? In his place. Well, that goes bad. So he destroys the world with the flood and he starts over. And what's he do with Noah? The, you see, these are the same commands. They're the same commands. God is establishing Noah as the new Adam. He's given the same responsibility, which in essence is to fill the earth with his glory. To, to be an image bearer and to live on the earth in the way that God would live if God was there uh, like man is. To rule it like God would rule it. The bow reminds us of God's commitment to creation. And it gives sinners comfort. All right? Let's keep going because we have even a bigger covenant to deal with. The next major covenant in the scriptures is the covenant with Abraham. Now, let me give you a little perspective to try to convince you how important this is. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, I think, cover maybe more than a thousand years. A long period of time, right? They compress the history of mankind from creation, I think, all the way up to the early second millennium. And it's written not from a scientific perspective, not from an archaeological perspective, but from a theological perspective. When we get to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 11, it slows down. All of a sudden, instead of millennia of history, we get four generations of one family. 39 chapters dealing with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It slows down. I do not think that it is an understatement to say that all of world history is related to the covenant that God makes with Abraham and his family. All of world history is related to the promise that God makes to Abraham. Now, think about what just takes place in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. I know we're weaving in and out of things. So, after the Tower of Babel, it seems that there's no sign of grace. There's no grace in Babel. It's just sin and judgment spreading, right? You don't, you don't get hints of grace, Judgment is the scattering of the people, right? It's the creation of what? Nations. So in chapter 11, you have the creation of nations. Keep that in mind when we come to Abraham's promise in chapter 12. We have to wait a whole generation. In the text, it's not even a word. It's just a space, right? But in the, in the chronology, it's a generation. A whole generation waiting darkness. And then suddenly we meet a 75-year-old man named Abram. Suddenly, out of nowhere it seems, we get this massive flash of hope. God is telling Abraham in an effect that he will reverse the effects of the judgment on battle. Babel. Remember? He's creating the nations and they're disunified. And what's God telling Abraham? I'm going to make you the father of nations. Right? He's unscattering the scattering caused by sin. That's the promise. 
He's going to regather all the scattered people together and bless them once again. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is in multiple places. Uh, Chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17 are the big ones. So they repeat, they expand, they expound, they do different things. Um, But let me read, This this is the shortest one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. You remember the problem? What was the problem at Babel? They wanted to create a name for themselves. And God says, I'm going to make, I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this is the first promise, maybe the second promise of the gospel. It is the first clear promise of the gospel. This is not about ethnic Israel only. This is bigger than that. This is the gospel. This, is, this promise given to Abraham is the first clear statement of the gospel and it's going to dominate the rest of the Bible. And this is what establishes heaven. John Stott put it like this. He said, It may be truly said without exaggerating that not only the rest of the Old Testament but the entirety of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises of God. Okay? Now, just in case you think John Stott and I are reading into it, which you probably don't, but I've got the slide. Look how clear this is in Galatians chapter 3. Paul's making this massive argument about the gospel. What does he say? And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying what? In you shall all the nations be blessed. Do you see what's happening here? The promise of the land, the promise of the, eth- the ethnic promises, the blessings, the cursing, that is all gospel stuff. Do you see? Galatians chapter 3. This is gospel stuff. Genesis chapter 12 is the text, this covenant, that the whole Bible is expounding upon. Right? Now, let's, let's look at three elements of this promise. You could say there are four, but we don't have time. Now, I'm going to do it like this. This is cleaner. All right, three elements of the Abrahamic promise. The first one is this, a people. Let's flip over to Genesis 17 because we get a little bit more detail here. Remember, this is another, this is another place where God states his covenant to Abraham, and you'll reference that here. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 4, look what God says. Behold, my covenant, there's that word, is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of what? Nations. Okay, let's think, let's think about this for a moment. God is saying that I'm going to give you a people. You remember he said, look at the stars. If you can count the stars, that's how many people you're going to have, right? This is not just about the family Christmas card. This is much bigger than that. Don't just think of a geopolitical nation. Think of a mass of united people. Think of a mass of united people. One of the ways that I'd make this point is look how the word nations is plural, right? You can see the same thing in verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 16, among other places. It is not just one nation, it is nations, peoples. And this promise is continually repeated all throughout the Bible. And often when God's referring to this, he uses this language. Listen to this carefully. This is kind of a new 
key for me. When God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, he's referencing this promise. And he says that all the time in some very interesting places. I will be your God and you will be my people. I don't have time to show, it all, show all of it here. But this is what a lot of theologians call the covenant formula. It's a formula showing that God is referencing back to what's going on. So even if you just see part of it, you will be my people or I will be your God, that's a clue. I call it a covenant clue, right? Ding, ding, ding. I need to be thinking Abraham, right? Even if it's partial. Let me show you how this can work, all right? Hopefully this won't make you dizzy. Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. Look what God says, all right? So we're still, we're still in 17. This is the initial covenant to Abraham. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God, right? Do you see the covenant formula there? God is saying, uh, there's a lot of things going on here. I'll, I'll, I'll have to save it. But God is specifically saying, he's talking about the people. The people here are your offspring after you. And then we've got some land promise here, which is specifically pointing to Canaan, right? We'll talk about that in a minute. But here, let me, let me back this up. Notice what he says. It's going to be an everlasting possession. This is not a temporary, this is an everlasting. It's getting, it's getting bigger, but we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's jump ahead to Jeremiah chapter 31, right? This is the classic New Covenant language. Look how similar this is. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So this is in the future. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Do you see the covenant formula? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Future tense. In the new covenant, right? You see how this is unfolding? This is a great example of unfolding from Abraham, the, covenant, the promise with Abraham. Now in Jeremiah, in the new covenant. Now look all the way ahead here. Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place. Man, that sounds a lot like land. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will what? He will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you see how the covenant with Abraham is much bigger than Abraham? And it's much bigger than ethnic Israel? Do you see what's going on here? Alright, let's, let's go ahead. That's for the people. We'll, stuff will click gradually at different times for different people. I think that's how this course is going to go. But let's look at the land. The famous promise of the land. God tells Abraham to leave his land and go to another land. 17 verse 8. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so Abraham is called to become an alien. All right? Again, where else do you hear about aliens? In the New Testament, right? Just like Abraham, we're aliens wandering. We're not in our land yet. Where's our land? There you go. All right, so he's called to be an alien. Now, remember, God's going to make a nation. We just saw that, a people. But you can't be a people if you don't have any place to live. You can't be a nation and not have a land, right? It doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. 
But now we can see that God is going to, and we understand that God's sending Abraham into what? The promised land is what? It's Canaan, right? He, it's, he, we know that. We understand that. It's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the land that Joshua will, uh, will, will conquer. And it's the land that we were talking about in Samuel. That's the context. That's the promised land. This is the land, the text says, for Abraham's offspring, for his descendants. But don't you get the sense here that something much bigger is going on? Did you notice how long do they get this land? What does the text say? Everlasting possession. That's talking into eternity. The land is an everlasting possession. Well, well then who are Abraham's descendants? Who are, who are God's people? Well, I'll give you a hint. We'll talk more about that later. But let me just give you one hint now. Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's what? Offspring according to what? The promise. You are Abraham's offspring. We can talk about that later. If you've got questions, come ask me, but we'll, we'll explain it more in, in the future. But the third part of the promise is that they are blessed to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in him all, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right? Notice that God is saying, I will give you a dual, there's a dual blessing. God's going to bless Abraham and all of his descendants. And through his descendants, what's he going to do? He's going to bless the whole world. I hope some of this is starting to come together. There's two blessings. A blessing for the people of God and a blessing for the people who come into contact with the people of God. That's everybody, by the way, right? God is blessing the world. All of the peoples of the earth will be blessed. The blessing is the opposite. Uh, what's the opposite of blessing? curse. God's getting rid of that thing, right? Let's get rid of it. God is promising to undo the curse through Abraham's descendants. He's rolling it back. In chapter 17, verse 5, Abram gets a name change. Abram means exalted father. If you know the story of Abram, it's a pretty bad name to have if you can't have kids, right? It's a really bad name to have if you can't have kids and you go around telling everybody, God promised me that I'm going to have more kids in the stars and then 25 years pass and you still don't have kids, right? That name taunted him. It haunted Abram. So God changed it to Abraham. Do you know what Abraham means? Father of multitude. Father of a multitude. Now the covenant with Abraham also came with a sign. <laughs> But you're nervous. Circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abraham. Doesn't the New Testament talk a lot about circumcision? Have you ever wondered that? It's because the whole Bible's built on the Abrahamic covenant. Now we can just say quite simply for tonight that circumcision is a physical mark on the body. It signifies a special relationship, like a covenant does, between God and his people. Right? It is, it, the, the, the way circumcision was used in ancient times, it showed that a people were set apart 
and that they were servants. Those are the two key things for circumcision in other cultures. So I think that's probably part of what's going on here. That, that those who are circumcised are set apart for God and they are uh, they're sons of God and they serve God. That's all signs of circumcision. Which makes a lot of sense if you have a circumcised heart. Right? You're set apart and you do his work. Do you see how this is all working together? It's all unfolding. Right? So don't flatten it. Circumcision is the sign of the covenant. So let's fill in our chart here. Alright? It looks like we'll have a few minutes for questions. Unless I don't like your question. And then I'll just duck and hide. Okay, so in the promised kingdom, in stage three... We got five more stages. It's so fun, right? In stage three, the covenant with Abram is the promise is a promise of the kingdom of God. God's people at this stage are Abraham's descendants. All right? Can we agree on that? We'll just say that. You don't have to agree with everything I've said so far, but we've got to agree on that. At this point, Abraham's descendants. The land, the place is Canaan. Right? It's said, that's what it said in Genesis 17. He's going to give them Canaan. Right? Then the God's rule and God's blessing is they get to experience God's blessing. We'll hear more about the rule later. The blessing to Israel, and there will be a blessing, God will be a blessing to Israel, and they will in turn be a blessing to the nations. Israel will in turn, their job will be to live out among the nations in a way that their light can shine before man. It's like they're, it's like they're a city on a hill. It's like the Queen of Sheba could come and get real wisdom from the people of God, right? It's like Jerusalem is a place that the nations are flocking to because they want to know what God is like. The design is for Israel to live in such a way to show the world how to relate to God, how to treat your, how to treat your brother and your wives and your slaves and your uh, employers, and how to treat the land, how to care for the world. That's the full picture of the world. Do you see? But Israel is really bad at that, we know, and so God does something else. This is a promise to reverse the curse, and it comes with a mysterious blessing. The way of salvation, the way of salvation is through righteousness and faith. Now remember, think about Abraham for a moment. It must have been really hard for Abraham to believe, right? How hard was it for Noah to believe that God's going to destroy the world with a flood if you've never seen rain? How hard is it for Abraham? It's like God likes putting his people in a situation where they got to have faith. they got to trust in him, right? Do you know how much infertility is in the story of Israel? You think it's there for uh, an accident? <laughs> God's putting his people to make them trust him. The challenges are absurd, right? For Abraham, he had to wait till he was 100. Then he had to deal with the whole Hagar situation. That's so embarrassing. Then he had to almost sacrifice Isaac, right? But the text says that Abraham believed. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, I wish I put it up here, is that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Do you see from the beginning, we're seeing the, the way of faith, salvation through faith, is being paid even from the beginning with Noah and Abraham. It's the same for us as it was for Abraham. We see this promise partially fulfilled in Genesis chapter 1, right? This big promise we're talking about through Isaac and through the history of Israel and then eventually through the promised land. But all of this, all of this, is just a shadow 
of the gospel that will be fulfilled in Christ. Those who trust in Christ are God's people. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. And when we look forward to the fullness of God's blessing, it's not some piece of land here on earth. That's going to be destroyed with fire. But it's in heaven, which is why the Bible calls it a new Jerusalem. You see? All right. Questions that are relevant to what we've talked about tonight.